Is it harder to keep a child alive or an, an alt-weekly circa like 2013? The realization, I guess, that, that yeah, this is just not going to work out. It's tragic. We should be doing a better job of understanding what's happening in online reporting and, and self-reporting and all of the citizen journalism that was happening, which is essentially what alt-weeklies were born from. So, to be honest, and it's going to sound callous, but I was not sad to see View go. So it was a toxic workplace, and then there was the struggle between advertising and editorial just became so prominent. But there was people willing to pour their guts into it, to do it for very little money, and they stopped caring about the writers. They stopped caring about the people who were making fuck all. Life got a lot better the day I walked out of there. For 26 years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one blue-collar Canadian prairie city. This is the story of View Weekly and C Magazine, two weekly papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. This is a elegy and love letter to those papers, their rise, glory days, notorious rivalry, and eventual decline. I'm Andrew Paul. I'm Fonda Mithrash. I'm Paul Blinov. And this is a tale of two weeklies. C-Magazine's last issue was published on May 26, 2011. The end came when it was purchased and then folded into View Weekly, which its founder, Ron Garth, had sold to a new owner, Bob Duell. Duell had purchased both papers. In that moment, C's ending closed the seam that began with the two papers split. But the merging of the papers didn't end the financial woes. It's no spoiler at this point to remind listeners that the last issue of View Weekly was published in November 2018. And in its few final years, its survival overseas didn't exactly feel like a victory lap. This period was when our co-producer Paul Blinov rounded out his days at View. You'll hear him in the following interviews. The new singular weekly, View, was still scrambling to find money. Andy Cookson, who during this period would go from a sales representative at C to, for a time, the publisher of View, recalls that struggle. It was compounded by the fact that his promotion came under less than ideal circumstances. And we were in yet another kind of tense situation where we weren't sure what was going to happen. Received news that I was publisher like a week before going on paternity leave, which is always the best time. Absolutely. You know? It's like the last thing you want to worry about. And then after I got back from my paternity leave, uh, not surprisingly, moved down from publisher <laughs> to uh, back to an office manager role and then associate publisher. And I mean, it mostly just shuffled around kind of within those few roles until I, I left, so. Mm -hmm. is, it, uh, is it harder to keep um, a child alive or an, an alt-weekly circa like 2013? I kind of feel like there's a lot of similarities there, you know? There's a lot of tantruming that was happening at certain points. I think I wouldn't have put in the effort that I had during my leave if I didn't care about the livelihood of the paper. I think that made a big difference. And certainly I felt like I wanted to still make or do my part, I think, from afar. Now my boundaries were probably not as set as I'd liked. And I, and I know I spent more time coming in the office with a crying baby on one shoulder than uh, I think myself or probably anyone there was comfortable with. I know that those board meetings are probably excruciating while I'm trying to talk about, you know, the upcoming <laughs> year of... Uh, special issues while 
a wailing toddler is like running around the room. But what do you do? What do you do? Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, you do what you can. In his publisher and associate publisher roles, Cookson was dealing with pressure from all sides. Duell, View's new owner, was trying to bring in outside expertise to help the paper find revenue. But they didn't always seem like a good fit. And so we ended up bringing in kind of outside consultants who each one seemingly, you know, multiple decades older than the last <laughs> with the same idea of like, well, just grab a phone book and call up everybody. And they, I mean, that's not how you build a, a community of clients in terms of sales. Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean, putting all your emphasis into that, it's not how you keep or attract new readers. It's mm -hmm. just, it seemed to be like every few or six, three to six months, there'd be another grand idea of something else that would, you know, stay the water leaking into the boat and keep us afloat a little bit longer. But each one just seemed to be further and further um, connected from what we were actually trying to do. When someone's telling you, well, you know what, I think might work, let's do a two-page spread on funeral homes in Edmonton. And you're like, do you, do you even know where you are? <laughs> mm -hmm. What day is it? It certainly <laughs> was a trying time. <laughs> so it's just, and I think in those instances, just trying to listen to what their concerns were, uh, bring that back to the powers that be to address. Often the powers that be would believe so heartily that it was the right decision, and so the one one item I remember was one of the people that came on board wanted to do like a stuffed bear donation where we would get businesses to basically sponsor a stuffed bear and then we would get it'd be we're not getting advertising from them or advertising from them. We're only asking them for the money that would be spent for advertising to donate for this bear drive and then we'll do like a one or two page spread and I remember probably a week's worth of office time going back and forth with this individual over different layouts and and when you're talking about how we're losing steam and every every one of like the publications that I think we were looking up to are shuddering <laughs> and we're losing a week to talk about well how can we really pull off this teddy bear donation spread and where we would be much more uh, I think on brand with who view was to just find a way to donate money or find a way to like put on a gig and donate money another one of view weekly's attempts to find money involved expanding the number of special advertorial issues and inserts Previously, there were recurring special editions of the paper with a themed feature section or insert, and each would typically be limited to one per year. These included things like a books issue or a food-focused issue or a winter activity section called Snow Zone that would run during the winter season. But after the merger, those special sections started arriving more and more frequently. View also started making specialty printed products. They weren't part of the paper itself, but would use some of the paper's resources, its production and editorial teams, to try and garner new advertising revenue. These included printed programs for theater productions or other venues. There was also a wine and spirits guide to be distributed free in liquor stores, but filled with both writing and advertising courtesy of View's staff departments. Mel Priestley, the dish section editor at View at the time, was directly involved with the production of some of these new products. So I kind of did it just as a way to make some extra bucks. And then because I was like the main wine writer of View when they came up with the idea to do the wine guides, we called them, I was sort of the natural selection for the for the writing them. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I at first I was like, okay, sure, you know, this is cool. It's kind of like a little chat book of wine um, with a bunch of ads in there, or at least that was the goal. Um, but it was still a useful tool. I thought, you know, I, I was like, well, I can I can make something that would actually be useful for people to go into a wine store and and you know use to navigate or, or just to learn for their own edification. Um, so the first one I did was was okay. I didn't mind it. The second one I did, because I think we only did two. It felt like there was more. But we also did a coffee one, coffee and a bit of tea. Right, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that, and yeah, um, the second wine guide, uh, they had plans to expand it. And they wanted to take it to, well, they did take it to Calgary and to the Okanagan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it was basically like just sell, like the same um, writing copy. It was just, you know, like stick different ads in it for different right. places. If you're this far into a tale of two weeklies, you've heard frequent references to the decline of ad revenue and cost cutting measures that print media had taken on. So, what were the ad targets? How much did an ad in the newspaper actually earn anyway? Yeah, $2,300 for a full page. $1,415 for a half page, $920 for a quarter page, $670 for a fifth page, uh, $500 for an eighth of a page. You want me to keep going? This is James Jarvis. He was a sales representative at View Weekly from 2012 until the paper eventually folded. Previously, he'd worked as a sales rep for the furniture chain Leon's and briefly in the classified section for the Edmonton Journal. And do you remember it was like, was there a certain size that was more popular? Maybe that's a weird question. No, I think a fifth, between a fifth and a, and a quarter were probably the size that we sold the most of. And then if people were committing to enough of them, then the price came down. And then there were some grandfather deals, you know, with some people, especially specifically really in dish and music, the Blackbirds and the Sugar Bowls and folks of the world that were paying a, a rate that went back to the early days and it just never went up. Jarvis's six years with View were unusually long for its ad department. A lot of the advertising staff had a much higher turnover rate. But he built relationships with clients and tried his best to keep the money coming in. Yeah. Do you remember, do you, have like a, do you have like a cold call script, James? Do you remember how you would like approach a new client for the paper? I, like I would do a bit of investigation first. It doesn't matter who they were, but somebody who's phoning Langano Skies thought it was an airline. The yeah. opposite of an airline. Yeah. Wonderful Ethiopian restaurant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it would be, it, it was important for me to understand who I was phoning. You know, unless I saw on their website that they had a, you know, a few weekly Best of Edmonton or Golden Forks thing. You know, I always, are you familiar with us? So there wasn't so much it was a, a, a script. Every situation was different, but there is definitely a, a sort of a qualifying procedure where, you know, building rapport, finding out, you know, pains, budgets, you know, solutions and that. So there is something in any of my calls was to uh, try to actually meet. Face-to-face. Face-to-face, because that's the most effective, because then there's a lot more that happens communication-wise on so many other levels than a phone call, which is the next base thing. And then, uh, you know, we had people who worked for us who thought that, you know, the most efficient way to do it was just to keep just sending out emails, 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 and that's the, the, you know, that's the, the least effective. Jarvis and the other sales reps could directly see the ad sales slowing down over the years. As things got worse, sales targets would be missed, and then eventually, consistently missed. You know, and, and when we're told specifically that this is, this is how many dollars needs to be in each issue to break even, and it's been eight weeks since we've done that. Do you remember what some of those numbers were? I want to say that it was somewhere around 20, 19, between 19 and 21 was like, that's the bare minimum. For like a 24, 28 yeah. page paper. That's the bare, like, nobody's going up 
but we're not going down. Right. And then, you know, we'd see weeks where it was 7,700, 12,000, on and on. And then uh, a hot summer guide that, you know, had over $300,000 in ads in it that was less than half of that towards the end. The Hot Summer Guide was View Weekly's biggest cash cow every year, a comprehensive month-spanning listing section of summer activities, festivals, and events. It generally took overtime for most of the paper staff to pull it off, but raked in the cash for the paper. You know, and it was not through lack of effort. Right. It's just, you know, people that were there constantly, you know, arts organizations that were there and there and there, and, you know, we're going to try something else. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. And then, you know, when that didn't work, and then they come back, and then, like, it was like literally, there's like three, two months before Bob says, November 28th will be that. So, like, you know what? You're right. When you're right, you're right. Okay. And then it starts up, and then boom. Right. Yeah. So it was a too little, too late. Nowadays, Jarvis co runs Eyesight Publishing, which puts many of his connections from the weekly days to use. He and View's former production editor, Charlie Bittescombe, still produce theater and cultural programs, as well as one of View's marquee events, The Blue Review, a sex-positive film festival based on the Hump Festival, originated by Seattle's Pulitzer Prize-winning alt-weekly, The Stranger. And now that we're talking about sex, there was, of course, one stream of revenue View could access that other papers couldn't, adult classified ads. Escorts, party lines, and adult massage parlors, these ads could be a source of controversy for View, as some advertisers avoided the paper precisely because of their inclusion. But they're also one of the things that set the alt-weeklies apart from other newspaper competitors. And Jarvis handled those accounts for much of his time at View. You talk a lot about relationships in, in this job. Obviously, it's such a big part of it. Um, was it different sort of in the, in the back pages? Like, were those relationships... And those conversations different? With, They're all above board. What do you mean? I mean, I'm, not, I'm implying nothing. Um, but was, you know, that's like, that is a kind of advertising that doesn't get sold in. in yeah, no, they, uh, those are trickier ones. And it's a very nomadic kind of here today, gone tomorrow thing. So a lot of times there were language issues, communication issues. Okay. Based on the, um, who, who I was talking with, with the owners and their, their cultural backgrounds. There was a lot of awful okay we need a picture this and that and and cell phone people sending cell phone pictures or i need your logo and they would take a picture of their business card with their phone and that's the right that's the thing uh and and so the ad builds for the for the cost of the ads so for a 60 dollar a week ad or a 30 dollar a week ad those ads required more resources to build than the $1,400 half-page ads. It was, and this is the same computer that I had at View Weekly. You know, the browser is just, you know, when I die and I go through that, huh. Oh my God, because, yeah. yeah, it's because of the photos and things that I would have to look for for these ads, uh, and then trying to find them, and then we'd have to buy them. It was an area of the paper that took up a lot of my time and made me and the paper minuscule amounts of money. And it was an accounting follow-up nightmare of getting sending them to collections. So while adult classifieds were a revenue source that other papers couldn't access, they didn't make much financial impact, or at least not enough to keep the paper afloat. With a more demanding print calendar, more inserts, and special sections taking the paper's talent, and fewer permanent staff in the office, soon enough, View's editorial sections started to diminish, similar to what happened to see a few years earlier. Managing editor Eden Monroe was let go in October 2014. He'd been in discussion with ownership about transitioning out of his role, 
but was instead met one day in the parking lot with boxes to empty out his desk. At some point, it was, I guess, so bad. Uh, the publisher was bailing, and I was, uh, we put out, uh, put out an issue, and then I was uh, given some boxes, and I left. And uh, I have never opened those boxes. They're oh, really? still in my basement, yeah. Just cleared out everything and uh, walked away and started a film production company the next day, and life got a lot better the day I walked out of there. To save on paying freelancers, much of the writing was moved in-house, which also ended many local freelancers' associations with the magazine. The staff were tasked with writing much more than they previously had been responsible for, in addition to the actual editing of the weekly paper. A staff writer role was hired, but that continued to reduce the number of voices in the paper. A few months later, the remaining editors from the merger period, who were at that point Megan Baxter, Mel Priestley, and Paul Blinov, left or were let go in summer of 2016. This is Paul and Mel Priestley discussing their departures. I was actually thinking back to this, and I, I must have just kind of blocked a lot of the, <laughs> the, the badness that was happening as to why I left. Because when I think back to View, I, I think, oh yeah, View, that was fun. Um, but at the end, it was not fun. And I wasn't having fun, and there's a reason I left. And I... I was was quite angry with the way uh, things were happening at the, at the paper. So it was a toxic workplace. And then there was the struggle between advertising and editorial just became so prominent. Um, and the sales team had their own turnover of, of editor, not editors, but of team members mm -hmm. because of that, right? It's a tough gig. And uh, yeah, so, so thinking back to what were the steps that left me or led me to leave there. Um, Lots of all of that little stuff building up, just just the toxic environment, um, the shrinking pages, not being able to pay writers what I wanted to pay them, what they deserve to get paid mm -hmm. to write for the paper, um, and just kind of like losing the heart of it, you know, yeah. l losing the the spark that kept me going for so many years. Like I started not caring as much um, or at all about some of the stories I was writing. And then as a writer, when you realize I'm writing something because I have to and not because I want to, it's just a job and it's not a very fun job. You just have to question why you're, why you're doing it. Um, but the last straw was when they, they fired Megan, the managing editor, um, who I, you know, I got along with Megan very well. And I, we stood up for each other, I think, in, in, against the flack she was constantly getting from the sales team and from the, the publisher. So when they decided to fire her, uh, that was it. I was like, yeah, I'm done. And I left two months later. And we so had, did we you. We had a meeting. I remember we you, did me have and a meeting. Megan went yep. out for a meeting. As my memory <laughs> recollects this from my perspective. We had booked a meeting, you, the three of us, um, and at that meeting, I was going to tell you two that I was leaving. Yeah. Uh, at the end of, I was going to see us through another fringe, mm -hmm. and that was going to be the end. And then when we went to that meeting, Megan was like, "I'm being let go," and it was like, "Oh fuck." Uh huh. Oh no. Yeah. And then it was like, and then if you're not staying, I'm not staying. <laughs> yeah, like, you're going, I'm going. Yeah, it was yeah. very. I remember the tone yeah. of our meeting at the underground um, uh -huh. over beers yeah. <laughs> because we needed them, uh, being like. Okay, we're all yeah, we're all leaving. on board. That's it. Yeah. yeah, and we comprised three quarters of the editorial team at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was only uh, poor Jasmine. <laughs> poor Jasmine. I'm uh, sorry, our staff writer. But we were yeah. the three editors at that point, yeah. and we all left within a month of each other. Megan yeah. was let go because her job was restructured, uh -huh. and then they hired a general editor. 
and then I left and, and you left at the same time. That was it. It was that was the last straw, right? It was because um, I don't think Megan deserved to get fired. It was it was a lot of personality conflict, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was I don't know what it was. Um, I, I won't speculate here on mm-hmm. any more than that. But I think it was a bad decision and it was one that I did not support. So, right. yeah. And I remember just being like. Why am I going to stick this out for another three months yep. and stress myself out over the fucking fringe? Especially the fringe. Yeah, you know. which is the hardest part of my job <laughs> right. every year. Um, do you remember how it felt to send that message, that email or that letter to be like, I'm done? Yeah, it felt real good. Yeah. I remember having the thought before I pressed send that's like, I'll never have this job again. Yeah. Or like a job like this again. There was little overlap between the departing editors and new hires. Angela Brunshot, C's former news editor, was the lone editor at the View office for a short time after Blinoff, Priestley, and Baxter were gone. And with its full editorial cohort largely diminished, the change in View's outward quality was quickly apparent. Trent Wilkie, who had long been a freelancer for both papers, took up an editor desk at View in its twilight years. It had taken him years to come back around to the weeklies after having two kids, but he came in at a point when things were already going south. What I felt changed when I was first writing to when I quit View, Mm -hmm. there wasn't a respect for the writers anymore. With the onset of the internet, people were writing for free. And they were good writers. Bloggers. They were doing this stuff for free. They were reporting. You had citizen journalism like you'd never had before. Mm -hmm. And in in Edmonton, there's a lot of really good journalists, I'm doing air quotes, that never went to J school. Now, there's a lot of shitty ones, too. But... You had this all of a sudden. It's like when Napster first came out. You know what I mean? You don't have to buy CDs anymore. You download whatever you want. You know, you get threshold apprehension because you don't know what to do. You've got all this music. <laughs> or you can start burning your own CDs and making your own albums and recording your own music. That, that's sort of what happened, right? So that's what sort of happened to the, the alt-weekly world was that you had all these opinions. You used to have to go and read them or be a part of it. You have to go and write them and get them published somewhere for people. Or you did a zine. Uh, but like that's sort of what happened. And this with, with a glut of writing... Of varying qualities. I was told during a writing meeting, we were having a discussion about something that happened in the newsroom. Right. This is at View? This is at View, yeah. I was told that my opinion as a writer didn't matter. I was told that by one of my bosses. And uh, I felt this weight leave my shoulders because I finally realized what's going on. Nobody fucking cares. Nobody cares. It's a product now. It was one of those things that was put in a market that was to make money, but there was people willing to pour their guts into it, to do it for very little money, and pour their hearts into it. And now that market is starting to take over by people who only see it as a, a thing, as a way to make money. And then at the end, just your most important part, the most important part is always your writers. They stop caring about it. They stop caring about their writers. Lots of turnover, lots of turnover, lots of turnover. Yep. Fucking done. Yeah. And that's that's what happened. They stopped caring about the writers. They stopped caring about the people who were making fuck all. For Trevor Schmidt, artistic director of Northern Light Theatre, the difference in know-how at View was clear. And he started to feel that the paper wasn't worth his company's ad dollars anymore. Now I feel like the last incarnation of View was filled with new people who knew nothing about anything. We were buying ads. We, we have been up until this last year. So they, they sponsored. Yeah, sponsored us. There was an, a, an exchange of ads and they also gathered advertisement for our 
year-long program. So, um, but they certainly, we certainly didn't buy good reviews, I can tell you that much. It's <laughs> <That's> not <laughs> ethical. <laughs> it's not at all. It's not at all. So, but, but I want to make that clear. Like, we weren't getting, we weren't getting good reviews, particularly in this last season where I just went, what are we paying these people for to hate us? <laughs> if I want people to tell me I'm a terrible person, I can go home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and at least I'll get a turkey dinner. From the publicity side, it was apparent that the weeklies were struggling for ad revenue, but the inexperience of the personnel at the magazine's office was also an issue when it came to the coverage they were providing. This is Josh Semchuk of Bottom Line Productions, a local arts publicity company that was there for the beginnings and endings of both Sea and View in Edmonton. The last three years of promoting arts organizations with view before its demise was it was very last minute in a lot of cases it was oh i have some space here can i can i do this or pitch but we learned we had to pitch weeks and sometimes months in advance because they had to have that kind of lead time to work up to it and on the flip side it forced us to be as nimble as possible because if stefan called and said i got to put something in um, you know, in, in three days, what do you got? Always had something for them and be able to turn it around quickly. So we, it forced us to be far more, ma- I mean, we were, we've always been organized, but I think it forced you to be nimble. When you have a hole to fill last minute on production day, it is possible to ring up a promoter and get a story on a tight turnaround. But usually you plan ahead to save everyone, yourself included, the hassle. The decline in editorial quality disappointed others, like Schmidt, and not just in terms of the nature of coverage his own company's shows received. The loss of long-standing and trusted critical voices in the papers was, for some, hard to take. Back to Trevor Schmidt. It, it makes me really sad. I used to pick them up all the time. I used to pick them up every week and read them every week from cover to cover. That got me informed about the whole community. Then it reached the point where I only picked it up when my shows were being mentioned, because I thought I don't need to read the rest of this, because there was stuff that wasn't of interest to me any any longer, or I didn't like the way things were being covered. And in the last little while, just before the demise of View, I gave up entirely. So to be honest, and it's going to sound callous, but I was not sad to see View go. I felt that if you want to write social commentary, write it as a an op-ed, but don't try and coach your op-ed as a critique of, of the theater scene. And I felt that that was happening a lot. For some of the freelancers, the switch in editorial staff meant established relationships and assignments were no longer guaranteed. Jose Teodoro, who wrote film criticism for View for more than a decade, found himself suddenly disconnected from the paper. Yeah, well, for the record, I personally did not stop writing for View. The editor who took over after you left just never responded to any of my mm-hmm. messages for a variety of reasons I, I was happy to continue writing <laughs> writing for a few weekly mm-hmm. you know it was definitely the the worst paying gig i had but there was also just the privilege of being able to write the kind of stuff that we wrote about there still the paper had to keep coming out and it did for a long time view kept going for two more years stefan boissonneau became an editor during this period actually he became quite a few things after starting as an intern he became a staff writer before taking over a section of his own Movement in the editorial department was fluid, just as another editor at the time, Lee Butler, told Boissonneau it would be. And it's funny because the minute that I was hired at View as a staff writer by Lee, he said, things change here so quickly. You could be in one position in one day and the next day you could be out of that position or you could be in a better position. It's yeah. just, that's just the way things go at View. 
And he was right because I became the music editor. We hired uh, another staff writer and she immediately became the arts editor. Her name was Sierra Bilton. Worked really, really well with her. And then we had basically a listings editor. And then, um, yeah, there, <laughs> like it was basically just us for for the a little bit and then we had Trent Wilkie who was basically like an old guard at VIEW and he was the news and online kind of editor right and uh, eventually a lot of people just kind of left some considered it a bad sign when in summer of 2018 VIEW announced that it would no longer run its section of free event listings which was one of the backbones of what weeklies provide but the paper soldiered on into the fall until on November 29th 2018 when VIEW Weekly published its final edition it was issue number 1,205, and that was the end of the alt-weeklies in Edmonton. In the end, there was a brief outpouring of condolence messages for View's demise on social media. And here's our co-producer, Andrew Paul, reading some of those posts. Eamon McGrath posted an image of two View cover stories that featured his albums, along with a message. For many lifetimes ago, thank you for everything you ever did for art and music in hashtag Edmonton, View Weekly, R.I.P. Actor Mark Muir tweeted a view cover depicting him as his well-known character, Commander Shepard, from BioWare's Mass Effect video game. Muir said, Farewell to View Weekly. Thanks for the years for support for the Edmonton arts community, and on a personal note, for your help promoting my shows and projects. The BioWare cover story Muir drew the image from was written in 2007 by Darren Zenko. Musician Doug Hoyer tweeted, Farewell at View Weekly. As a teen in a nearly pre-internet life, you were a fantastic gateway into what I consider to be Edmonton. As a musician, your support meant so much for me. As a writer, thanks for letting me keep the CDs I reviewed. For real, thank you for all you did. Freelancer Kate Black tweeted, Sad to hear of At View Weekly's closure. It opened a door for me as a baby student journalist, and I am forever grateful. Thank you. The ever-honest critic and former editor of both papers, Paul Matwachuk, tweeted, Wow. What a half-hearted shrug of a farewell. Speaking as a former editor, I am disappointed at View Weekly put so little effort into its final issue. When View's closure was announced in November 2018, Bob Duell made a statement to Star Metro Edmonton, noting that, quote, We decided that we would cease publication now rather than face another year of diminishing resources, end quote. Duel also told GigCity.ca that View did not fail. It's not bankrupt. Fewer people were picking it up, and we had few resources to put into it. So we thought, why don't we spend our time and energy on something that's growing instead? This isn't anymore. The something that's growing that Duel speaks of there are those special sections and advertorial inserts. Things like the Hot Summer Guide and the Golden Fork Awards now live on beyond the paper as entities published by Great West Newspapers as do the items that James Jarvis and Charlie Bittisco maintain with Eyesight Publishing. Among the sentiments from dozens of former staffers, editors, and freelancers, there was a Bon Viewage party a couple months later, which was sparsely attended by a handful of former contributors. Ron and Mike Garth were there, listening as city councillor Scott McKean addressed the audience. I'm a newspaper man. I worked for about 27 years in newspapers, 24 of them at the Edmonton Journal. And I loved working in newspapers. And I think newspapers are critical to a community to not only reflect itself, or reflect the community back at itself, but to lead opinion, to reveal hidden gems like we're in tonight. It's critical, and View Weekly um, was 
an integral part of this community for years. And it is a tragic loss. And I know this, uh, nobody wants to be bummed out tonight, but I, I really do miss it. And all of you who work for View Weekly, uh, I can say that I deeply appreciated the work you did week in, week out. I remember when I was in the St. Albert Gazette, which was a weekly. So my best memories were we would put the paper to bed on a Monday night and then head to the Bruin Inn and, and drink till really late. And then have to get up and start it all over again the next week. And it was one of the best feelings when you get in the next day and crack open, get to see that newspaper, that product that you put blood, sweat, and tears into. I miss you all and the work you did. I wish you all the best. So what did Edmonton lose with the closure of those printed alt-weeklies? Among other things, one loss that many of our interview subjects felt was that of trusted voices offering regular, reliable discourse on what was happening in the community, and a physical format that would lead you to those voices without an algorithm filtering things for you. Here's Jose Teodoro again. I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, but I do think that the experience of picking up uh, a tabloid-sized newspaper and being able to flip through is an opportunity for surprise. It's an opportunity to read things that you probably will never read if you're just looking at like the, the main page of the website of a newspaper or a magazine. I think the quality of the experience is just inherently different. and. It may have been as important in the experience of reading an alternative weekly as it does continue to be in terms of reading a, a daily newspaper, you know? How do you sit down and feel like something of the outside world is getting funneled to your eyeballs? And all, there's also the whole curational aspect of that, you know? Like, how is a, a, a managing editor or the editor of a particular section going to make decisions uh, about what you need to read that you can't get in the dailies or that you're not getting on television or that you're not getting by looking at social media. It's just one more avenue that seems to be eroding more and more. In his Edmonton Journal column after the closure of View, Fish Grakowski said, what especially gets me about the loss of the space occupying arts weekly is a thing I still very much covet about any print media. That page turning sense of magazine browsing, which inevitably leads to encountering information you're not specifically looking for, from which you might accidentally learn something. It's the difference between a good bookstore or library and Amazon.com. A bit further back, while she was working at CGSR and View, Samantha Power reflected on the history of alt-weeklies and their contemporary trajectory in a university paper titled A Changing Space for Radical Thought, Challenges to Traditional Models of Alternative News. Uh, so I looked at the history of alt-weeklies, and a lot of it was really inspiring, of course. Like, alt-weeklies started essentially that, a voice for the voiceless. Um, there's specific points in history that people point to, like the Watts riots in 1965, where I think it was LA Weekly was sort of the only paper to actually send a reporter out and report on those riots and actually talk about the communities involved and provide some sort of profile to what was happening at the time. That type of reporting, I think, has always been at the heart of alt weeklies is to actually be where people are and understand um, marginalized communities. So that um, was a really inspiring part of writing this paper on alt weeklies. It seemed antithetical to what alt weeklies were, that we weren't adapting to the grassroots nature of 
the internet at this at the same pace. Like it, it felt because of that history and responsiveness, we should be doing a better job of understanding what's happening in online reporting and and self-reporting and all of the citizen journalism that was happening, which is essentially what alt-weeklies were born from. But we almost fell into the same traps as mainstream media and just sort of almost became more protective of what the alt-weeklies were is um, what I sort of found. So that was that was disappointing. The weeklies were also an important platform for emerging students coming out of journalism school. Here's Neil Fitzpatrick of McEwen University's journalism program. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit, uh, View Weekly especially, because C Magazine was was sort of prior to my time here, but View Weekly was a great um, uh, venue for taking our students for their placements. Um, Not only for their field placements, but often students who uh, were freelance writing uh, had an opportunity with View Weekly. So um, when it went under, uh, it left uh, some of our, our existing students in a lurch because they were freelancing for View. Um, and it also left a big dent in, in my, my opportunities to find placements, especially in that arts and, and culture area. Well, it's extremely important because we can teach them all the basics here and, the, and the, what they can expect. But it's not until they end up working at a, let's say, you know, the Cold Lake newspaper or uh, the, the newspaper in Wetaskiwin, where they're actually, they have their feet on the ground and they're out interviewing people and, and meeting deadlines on a daily basis sometimes. So it's extremely important that they learn those skills. And to be able to go to a smaller publication or a smaller website or a smaller newspaper and, as you said, get the crap beat out of your writing and and have uh, somebody who's been in the business for a while say, no, you can't do that for this story. You can't do that for this interview. These are the questions you should have asked. You know, you're making uh, uh, typos in your story. You've got to catch those. in the pr- All those things are so essential. So when there's fewer opportunities to learn that, it makes it that much more challenging, I think, for the journalism graduates to actually enter the field. They're not having anybody correct their mistakes, so they're liable to continue making those mistakes. Today, there are plenty of options to find events and local information, though, most of them online. The majority of musicians, artists, and arts companies use the big, pre-existing social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, to promote their work. But that changes the discourse around those events. In a paper that's independent of the artists involved, there's outside perspective and a trust that can come with that. Not always, of course. Papers routinely got details wrong and misspelled names, among other errors. But there remains a different sort of credibility that arrives when someone who isn't yourself or a fellow artist talks about your work. After View Weekly stopped printing, Boissonneau and the remaining View editorial team started up Days, an online publication focusing on local arts and culture. They've been paying the bills by throwing fundraising events and, Boissonneau notes, are looking to focus on a quality-first approach, even if that means less frequent, non-event-based coverage. We're trying to go away from event-based stuff um, now because event-based stuff, like, you need to publish a like, you know, if there's a band coming, you need to publish at least three days before the band's there, you mm-hmm. know, something like that. I really wanted to start doing profiles just on, like, people in Edmonton yep. that doesn't have a time frame. Like, we could just release it whenever and make it as strong as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. I had um, one of our writers, Alex Sorochin, write this story on Polar Park Brewing Company um, about them being a new venue and a new brewery. And uh, it took him, like, an upwards of, like, a month to write it because there was a lot of different facets. And I said, we can publish this whenever you have all the time in the world give me your best piece or nothing at all (laughs) and uh and he did days joins another online locally focused publication 
Back in 2011, Mike Ross started GigCity.ca, an online news and entertainment magazine focusing on local music. Gig City was the one to pick up Views local comic strips after the fallout, too, and now covers a variety of arts topics. Liz Nichols has her theater blog, TwelfthNight.ca, and there are emerging media models like Taproot Edmonton that involve subscribership or patron-type investments. Calgary has something called The Sprawl, which focuses on online pop-up journalism that goes deep rather than wide and is crowdfunded and ad-free. All of which to say, there are some folks out there plugging away, trying to cover things locally, and some are doing it pretty well. But few, if any, are getting paid very much, if anything at all. The paycheck from a weekly wasn't always much, but it was something, and for many involved, something consistent, which can be rare in the freelance world. There are still a few print alt-weeklies out there in Canada. The Georgia Strait in Vancouver and Halifax's The Coast are still running, as is Now Magazine in Toronto. The latter, though, is currently going through a major change in ownership. As we were putting together the final strokes of our weekly story, on December 2, 2019, CBC reported that Media Central agreed to buy Toronto's Now Magazine for $2 million in, quote, the first step of a plan to consolidate the alternative publication landscape, end quote. While there are no immediate plans to change the Now brand or editorial team, Plans are underway to add new content categories and integrate now with Can Central, Media Central's cannabis-focused online magazine. Now Magazine co-founder Alice Klein said in a letter to Now readers that it's an exciting time for the magazine to enter the next stage of its evolution. CBC also reported that in Now's most recent fiscal year, the magazine suffered a net loss of over $800,000 on revenues of just over $4 million. Media Central's only other property, Can Central, that's with two ends in can, focuses on cannabis lifestyle coverage. And perhaps that's where this is all going, at least in Canada. To pot. There was a time when the weeklies and a good chunk of the art sector were buffered significantly by alcohol and cigarette advertising until the legality around that changed. In a way, it's not a far cry from the back page ads CNView used to run. But now that cannabis is legal, perhaps the advertising revenue of a brand new industry can plug some of the holes facing media. Or maybe it can't. We'll see. As we bring this tale to a close, it seems fitting to circle back around to Ron Garth. He wasn't there for the last years of the paper, but his name was forever in the masthead as View's founding publisher. He's the reason Edmonton had two papers for as long as it did. Like some anti-hero from a gritty television show, his methods were unorthodox, but he always managed to get the paper out the door. Under him, View took bold, progressive stances on topics like LGBTQ issues long before the mainstream realized that diversity was kind of a big deal, including the running of a long-standing column called Queerminton that offered many marginalized voices a public platform. Garth tried to look to the future, pushing towards video content as the world started to plug in more and more. And most of all, he kept the paper coming out until the only way to do that was to let go of the reins and pass it off to someone else. He also pissed people off. A lot of people. In an earlier episode of this podcast, we referred to Ron Garth as a tenacious idealist. And indeed, our interview subjects called Ron a great many other things over the course of this series. Here's what some of them said. Ron was the type of guy who um, you felt the history of alt-weeklies just like coursing through his veins. It was like the physical manifestation of what alt-weeklies were. Ron Garth should be properly regarded as a legend 
of Edmonton. He was such a passionate guy um, about the arts and about the publications. I tried to stay out of the politics of it. I wasn't really interested in that. Although anytime I'd see Ron at an event, I would hear all about it. You know, Ron was, you know, for all of his talk about how in you know, the newsrooms where Conrad Black controls the paper, people are afraid to write about certain things and he skews things a certain way. Well, the only times I've really encountered, like, a, you know, a publisher who told me not to write something or not to write a story was when I was working for View <laughs> under Ron Garth. He cared and he made a difference in the city's media landscape. People all over knew Ron Garth and believed in what he was doing. He saw that the future was coming. We tried to adjust. It was difficult. He always edited the people. He felt like you get the right people and then you don't hold them back when they're excited. I mean, he said that to me one time where he was like, you guys want to build a studio, let's do it. When people are excited about doing something, you don't tell them don't do that. You use that enthusiasm and you make great things. I would, uh, I would have stayed there forever if Ron Garth had been there. It takes something to be like a like yoga addicted ponytail serial arts promoter publisher and and he is uh, just like uniquely and entirely himself and only ever will be and like it will be a deep deep shame uh, if Edmonton kind of forgets his legacy and what he did uh, over the course of like 25 to 30 years. As the Thais founding editor David Beers has oft been quoted, a diverse news media is essential to a thriving democracy. Traditional journalism is struggling in a time when it's more important than ever to build community and speak truth to power, two things that alt-weeklies expressly attempted to do. To David Barry, that we had two weeklies in a city like Edmonton was a boon for everyone involved. I would mostly just say that like, I think everywhere is poorer for the lack of the alt-weekly spirit. And as much as there was fights between them and like weird little rivalries uh, and mistakes and all sorts of weird bad things, Edmonton was incredibly blessed to have two whole papers whose more or less organizing principle was to like cover the arts and a different sort of politics and try to provide that sense of community for it. And I hope, I really hope that the mess of new things we have now can find some way to replicate that spirit, if not the actual tangible thing. Now at 74, with his newspaper days long behind him, Garth can see that some of his ideals, however tenacious, remain relevant. I, like I say, I had made my peace with it uh, before, when I had my meeting with everybody, and uh, I, I was fine from that point on. Uh, and of course, it, it was—it just got harder and harder for newspapers in general. But but it's just the the realization, I guess, that that yeah, this is just not going to work out. Not just for for the paper. The large picture is that for journalism, it's for the whole nine yards. It's it's, it's tragic. This whole populist era is frightening and and uh, yeah that's how it felt yeah more frightening than than sad for me more uh, uh and it's of course nostalgic you know what we did the work that we did needs to carry on that just just has to happen so and it will it will because i, I think that uh, we can't survive without those things 
So as our fair weeklies and their turbulent rivalry have gone to their final rest, we, as writers, as a community, look forward to what's next. To the dream of a far, far better thing that may take their place. Someday. Thanks for listening to A Tale of Two Weeklies. And thanks to the people who helped us put this together. Colleen Fian, Michael Nunweiler. Luke Thompson. Jolene Ballandine. And the people we interviewed for this podcast. David Berry. Dave Bedini. Brian Bertels. Stefan Bassano. Chelsea Bowes. Rich Kearney. Andy Cookson. Neil Fitzpatrick. Ron Garth. Mike Garth. Fish Grakowski. Michael Hingston. Jeff Holobitsky. Duff Jameson. Craig Jansen. James Jarvis. Gene Kosowin. Scott Lingley. Paul Matwichuk. Gags Beasley. Eamon McGrath. Scott McKean. Eden Monroe. Gordon Nielsen. Pete Ngoyen. Liz Nichols. Rolly Pemberton. Samantha Power. Mel Priestley. Mike Ross. Steve Sandor. Mary Sassano. Trevor Schmidt. Mike Joshua Semchuk, Darka Tarnoski, Vern Thiessen, Melissa Thingolstad, Jose Teodoro, Murray Udis, Zoltan Varadi, Jill Wotamanek, Vicky Wierczynski, Trent Wilkie, and Curtis Wright. And you for listening. Tale of Two Weeklies is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonder Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Music is by Luke Thompson. Artwork is by Michael Nunweiler. This series was made possible with project support from the Edmonton Heritage Council. Special thanks to Edmonton Community Foundation for use of their recording studio.